questions. If you're a parent of young children, you may get tired of questions. Those road trip questions, are we almost there? How much longer? Do I really have to sit by them? To the questions of, why can't I do this? All my friends' parents are letting them do it. To the questions of that more, uh, not as humorous idea of the home, but of a husband and wife who may be struggling. Why did you say this? Why did you do it yet again? Why did you look at this? Why did you not help when I asked you to? Questions have a way of really shaping a conversation, don't they? I mean, you may walk up to your friends even after church today, and you want to tell them all about the things that happened in your week, and by asking one question like, did that hit you as hard as it hit me? Changes that whole conversation, right? From the mundane to the things of eternity. Questions, there can be bad questions. I know teachers are trying to encourage people to participate. There is no bad question. I had one teacher that said, there is no dumb question until I asked it. And then they said I was wrong. So um, not all questions are created equal, right? But if you read ahead in John's Gospel, chapter 9, which is where we're at this morning, I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures there. You'll find it on page 895 in the Blue Bibles, in the chairs. And I encourage you, follow along as we read through this. Don't ever trust what anybody says up here. Read it in the Word yourself. That's why we have copies of the Scriptures all throughout this room. We encourage you to open it and follow along. It'll make much more sense to you if you do that. You'll be able to see what's being spoken of, and you can follow along in the Word. So take advantage of that. The questions that are asked in this passage all stem from the very first question. Every other thing that takes place in John chapter 9 stems from this one question. As he, being Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And here's the question. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That question shapes everything that takes place in this chapter. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, is it his fault that this happened? Or is it his parents' fault that it has happened? What, what would possess the disciples to frame this question? To pose this question to Jesus? What would cross their minds to think that sin was the root of this man's blindness? Furthermore, how is it that they knew he had been born blind? Well, the text doesn't tell us either of those. And so I'm going to make a big sell for tonight. Come back and you will get the answer to that question, because I'm not going to answer it now. I know, that's frustrating, isn't it? Was it his fault or his parents that he was born blind? Tonight we're going to dig into this from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, 
And so I hope you will come back and hear as we explore what would prompt such a question. Now, Jesus' response in verses 3 through 5 is pretty straightforward. And in his response, he reveals three truths. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus goes on to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. In these first seven verses, we see the question of Who's at fault for this man's blindness? And Jesus' answer is a profound one. In verses 3 through 5, he reveals to us three important truths. First, in verse 3, he gives a theological point. Your infirmity is for God's glory. This man's infirmity was not the result of his sin or his parents' sin. It is for the singular purpose of God's glory. Now, I am speaking to a room of people who are, there are sufferers in our congregation. There are people that suffer with mental health issues. There are people that are suffering with physical issues. There are people who are struggling with grave, grave physical issues. And every one of us who struggles with disabilities, weaknesses, or sickness, we believe if only God would save us from this, if He would deliver us from it, we would be better off. Yet I want you to hear, brother and sister, I love you, and I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Even in your suffering, this man's blindness was to display God's power. And so even in your suffering, don't lose sight of the fact that God has ordained this so that He would bring glory to Himself through you. In this man's case, it was a healing. His sight was restored. In your case, it may be a lifetime of pain. It may be the bright, sunshiny days, the joy and the gladness in your heart is muted by shadows and spirits and discouragement. But let me tell you this. Wherever you are, we have the ability to follow Christ in such a way that even in our suffering, He is glorified. You look at, there are countless stories of individuals who in the midst of great hardships You think of the great hymn writers. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows, or I'm sorry, when sorrows like sea billows roll. I mean, this, this hymn was written by a brother who lost his children on a ship traversing from America to England. Only his wife survived. And he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Johnny Erickson Tata is a modern-day example of this, a woman whose entire life was 
changed by one diving accident, and yet she has done so much. God has used her in great ways. She has learned the hard lesson, the hard, hard lesson that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Don't lose sight of this. At the very beginning of this chapter, we see everything. A man who is born blind prompts a question, and Jesus says, it's for my glory, the glory of God that this is taking place, and then Jesus heals him. The climax is over. There's not a lot of drama, and yet what unfolds in this passage is we see Jesus declaring this truth, that even infirmities are for God's glory in verse 3. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 4. He says that this work that I am doing and that y'all are doing with me, pointing to his disciples, we have an urgency. We need to keep working because there is a time that is coming. The work must be done in the day because night is coming, night when no one can work. What does this refer to? I think Jesus is simply speaking to the realities of the day before electricity. You worked in the daylight because you had daylight. And when it became night, work ceased. And We can see it clearly. There's only so much time to do kingdom work. Jesus says, I'm going to be returning to the Father soon. I'll no longer be in this world. As disciples of Jesus, guess what? Our days are also numbered. We only have this brief dash between our birth date and the day of our going home to Jesus. We only have that time to do God's work. So don't waste your life, Christian. We read this in Acts 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul would later write in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christians, I I understand we have countless distractions. There is no perfect one in this room except our triune Father, our triune God. We all struggle with staying focused on what it means to be a Christian. It is not that we would have happy lives, easy lives, that we would live the American dream. It has nothing to do with our faith. It is a pure accident that we are born here or our forebears immigrated here. Our life is not about this life. And so there ought to be an urgency to our kingdom work. And I'm not talking about thoughtless hurry or pressured haste, but this overriding reality that what you and I are called to do as disciples of Jesus matters. And there is only so much time to complete this work. Here's an illustration, because you're thinking as I was thinking, as I was writing these words this last week, how do we do this, Lord? I mean, we got responsibilities. We got doctors. We've got kids. We've got jobs. We've got yard work. 
Some of us have livestock. Some of us like shooting livestock or hunting. Um, you know, we've got things to do. And how do we live with this unfettered passion for Jesus? I think maybe this is a helpful illustration. You tell me. A student understands this whether they're in elementary, in high school, or in the university, your life doesn't shut down and all you do is homework, does it? And yet, homework is what your life is ordered around. You do your homework and then you can go play. You do your homework in order to present papers to get the degree. You do your homework and that is the primary thing as a student. Your job is to get the education And then all the other stuff fits in where there's space around it. I think that's a helpful illustration of what it should look like for us as Christians. Our primary job is to be disciples of Jesus. That doesn't negate the fact that we're husbands and wives, we're fathers and mothers, we're children, we're students, we're factory workers or farmers. It doesn't negate all of any of that. It should, however, be the thing that defines how we use our life how we order our life. Why is it that we should labor with urgency? Well, think about this. We who were saved by grace, who live, move, and act, and think as a result of God's grace, how much that should change the way we do what we do. What is our motivation? It's not to get more from God. He's given us everything in Christ. It's a reflection of that gratitude What we do and how we live should be a reflection of the grace that we have received. And if you view this kingdom work idea as a burden, oh, you mean I got to read my Bible? I got to get up earlier and read my Bible? Or I I need to go and share the gospel with neighbors when I just want to get done with my work, drive the car in the garage? and put the door down, and then just relax for a few hours before I have to do it all over again. If you're viewing the Christian life as a burden, let me just encourage you and gently point you back to the grace you've been given. And to understand that you are not seeing God's grace or His empowering grace in the right way. Because Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Living the gospel out as Christians should be the most fun career of any person. We have every reason to be happy and joyful in this world. And I'm preaching to myself here because I'm like a little less than a half full guy. We have been given unmeasurable treasures and good things in Christ. I mean, you grew up in a hard home life. You grew up with not knowing who your dad was or who your mom was, being an only child. Look around you. You are surrounded by a company of witnesses of God's grace. You have been birthed into, by the Spirit, into a new family, one that will endure and with a father who is good who is better than any earthly father ever could be, who will never deceive you, who will never be cruel and unkind to you, who is always merciful, always patient, always on time, always willing to be interrupted to hear your cries for help. 
The burden of this gospel work is light. It's easy. And we just have to recognize that we have limits. And we trust in the limitless God. There's an old song that said, little is much when God is in it. Some of us need to remember that God is the Savior, not us. So here we come this morning with our one talent, our sack lunch as it were, and we can know that God is able to make much good come from it. We may beat ourselves up. I was talking with a brother this week who said, I didn't, I didn't take advantage of the opportunity to share the gospel with this, this person. Well, that, and that's a good concern to have, and it's a good way to think. But know this, even if you only have a few minutes to talk to that person, and you do so, you do so for God's glory, you don't have to live with the guilt that you didn't have 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour. Understand that a little here and a little there, it adds up over time. Yes, there will be times where God will ask us to set aside an extended season, an extended period of time to disrupt our plans for His kingdom work. And that's His prerogative to do so. But for most of what we do, adopt the mindset of a little here and a little there, and that's good. That's okay. Here's the third truth that Jesus shared in verse 5. He declared his absolute and unique status. I am the light of the world. Can there be any clearer illustration of this than the one who gave sight to one who was born blind? He, he brought light into this man's life. He opened his eyes. Why did Jesus take the steps that he did in verses 6 and 7 to heal the man? He, chapter 4, he spoke a word and healed others simply by that. Well, we don't know why Jesus did it. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some of the early writers, according to one commentator, saw a link between the ground that was used in the mud pack and the dust from which Adam was formed. Others see the connection between the pool the name of the pool was Siloam, which meant sent. And it's no coincidence that John records that was the name of the pool. And here is Jesus, the sent one of the Father, who is demonstrating God's recreating power. The man went and washed in the pool of Siloam, and he came home seen. And here we see that Jesus is a great fulfillment because he is the living water who gave sight. This man is a picture of ourselves. Jesus tells us he was created to display God's glory. Jesus' healing of this man who was born blind, his blindness was not an injury, it wasn't from getting shot with a paintball gun, his blindness, that's a personal reference for those of you that may not know. Um, his blindness was from birth. And he is a picture of all who are born into this world who are born blind. I'm not talking about physical blindness, but real spiritual blindness. You see that our God is both powerful and merciful and he is going to act according to his own purposes. 
Jesus gave sight to a man born blind, which serves as an illustration of His grace to us who are born sinners. Prior to meeting Jesus, Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's us before Christ. We are helpless. We are born blind to our sin. We cannot change our condition. In fact, we don't even understand our condition. We have no perspective But we also see in this passage that he wasn't the only one who was blind. The Pharisees, who are stubbornly hard-hearted and refuse to believe in Jesus. So as we look at verses 8 through 34, and I'm not going to read all of this portion because it's a lot of the same thing. First, we see in verses um, 8 through 12, that he's questioned by his neighbors and associates. People that know this man was born blind are in awe that he is now seen. They're even questioning, is this the right guy? As though he had a twin running around. I don't know. But then as we get to verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees are brought into this. These are the religious leaders of the day, and they're upset about two things. One, they cannot stand Jesus. And two, yet again, Jesus has done a miracle on the Sabbath. Now, they question him, and he explains to him how it is that Jesus healed him. They don't believe him, though. And so, as you look at verses 18 through 23, this adult man, his parents are brought before the council now. And they're going to give an answer for his blindness now made whole. And they're afraid. They have heard the ultimatum. No one speaks a word positively about Jesus or or else you're out. Kicked out of the synagogue. Cut off from not only the religious aspect of the Jews of that day, but the social and the cultural aspects. You are an outsider. And so they weren't willing to put their necks out. They quickly say, He's an adult. Ask him. We can testify that he was born blind, but how it happened? Ask him. And so, in verses 24 through 34, he is questioned yet again by the Pharisees. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus' teaching and his miracles have caused division, just as he said it would in Luke's gospel. He said, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus is saying, who I am and the claims that I make will redefine even the most intimate relationships because some will believe in me and others will reject me. And we see that played out in these passages. The ensuing interviews only reveal the division which Jesus produces. So as you look at verses 8 through 34, you see this constant cycle of questions that are flowing from this first question. How are you able to see? And he tells them, I am the guy, verse 10. 
The man called Jesus, verse 11, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And then they're like, well, where is he, Jesus? He said, I don't know. And so he goes to the Pharisees and they ask him, how is it? And again, as you look at verse 15 and 16, he tells them the exact same story. Yet the Pharisees in verse 16 respond, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so what's so interesting is, look at verse 17. The, the Pharisees, they asked the blind man who'd been made uh, given sight, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until he called his parents. And so we've already walked through that section. So let's, let's go to verse 24. For the second time they called the man who had been born blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And this second round of questions by the Pharisees is not about the miracle. It's not about how did this come to pass. It can clearly be seen that they have an agenda. And they demand of the man, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, they are saying, we are calling you and requiring you to renounce this Jesus, this prophet, as you said. Tell us that you agree he is a sinner. And for the first time in the narrative, a question doesn't start the conversation. But it's a demand. And think about this. They're actually demanding that a man who had been healed from his blindness, in verse 7, who believes that Jesus is a prophet, verse 17, would declare that Jesus is a sinner. Now, how's that about looking a gift horse in the mouth? How's that about of turning good, turning around and doing something evil to one who has done good to you? So we see this man's dripping sarcasm. I love that this is in the scriptures. What did he do to you, verse 26? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Oh, do you also want to become his disciples? He knows that is not the case. And they reviled him. This is, this is such bad Non-Christian behavior here. What they do next. Verbally abusing him. They deride him as being a disciple of Jesus while they, they are Moses' disciples. Verse 28 and 29. And so this man doesn't back down. Verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. Again, just to clue you in, I love the sarcasm. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's something that one of them had said earlier in verse 16. Whether he heard it or not, it doesn't matter. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So we see they go back to their default setting to revile him. We see that this man who has been newly sighted has better vision than those who were born with sight. And this newly healed man, by no fault of his own, finds himself embroiled in a controversy, but he doesn't shy away from the truth. We shouldn't be surprised by their response as they slander him again and cast him out of the synagogue. They're doing exactly what we expect them to do at this point. But what's interesting is what happens next. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The very first question Jesus asks in the whole passage. In fact, Jesus isn't even around while this man's being interrogated. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now understand this. He was blind in his first interaction with Jesus. Jesus did the healing. The man went away and washed and his sight was made new, restored. He had never physically seen Jesus. So he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him. And what a truth that would have meant to someone who had been blind. You are seeing him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? So Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But, from, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, these last verses, verses 35 through 41, is simply Jesus putting together the application. He has healed the man, the first seven verses. He's revealed important truths about himself, that no matter what a disability may be, don't see it. It is the result of the curse, but it may not be and probably is not the result of your sin. It is for the purpose of God's glory. Jesus, he heals this man. And this man gets embroiled with people who are rejecting the fact that the miracle took place, who are trying to destroy anything that this man could have and say as true, ruin his credibility. But here we get to the application because Jesus walks back into the scene, introduces himself to the man that he healed and says, hey, you are seeing the guy who is the Son of Man. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, uh, you should trust me because I healed you. Let me just tell you how all that went down. Now, give me some kudos. Jesus doesn't do that. He simply asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? So in this passage, we see this man's response is straightforward. 
I don't know who he is. And then Jesus identified himself. And this man immediately confesses faith in Jesus, and he worshiped him. And what's interesting is Jesus allowed him to worship him. He received and accepted this man's worship. Now, I want to show you a picture. This is how we know that this man is a representative of us and our salvation journey and the need that all of us are born blind to our sin and need God to not only open our eyes to what sin is, but also our need for a Savior and also our need to trust in Jesus as that Savior. We see this progression. Look at, look at I want to point some things out to you about this man how he models genuine faith. You look at verse 11. He says that Jesus was the man. Then in verse 17, Jesus, he's declaring Jesus to be a prophet. And then he connected Jesus to his healing. In verse 30, he opened my eyes. And then if you look at verse 33, He declares that Jesus was from God, or else he couldn't do this. And finally, as we look at verse 38, it's mushroomed, it's grown and developed into a full-fledged faith. I believe. This is the progression. An introduction to Jesus. Many don't even know who the name is other than it's a curse word. It's a euphemism. Jesus Christ, who is that? But then as someone is unpacking the gospel with them, they begin to see the fruit of God at work in the lives of people around. And then he becomes interesting. And then there may be something about this guy. He, he is a prophet. Like the things that he said are wise and true. But then there's this understanding that this one is more than a man and a prophet at that, but he is from God. To the full culmination of the faith, a full-throated, I believe in the name of Jesus. He is my peace. He is my righteousness with God. He has shown me all the sin and why I sin, and He has shown me He is the unequivocal answer to my sin problem, that Jesus is my Savior. I love how this is a very personal and individual interaction that Jesus has with this man. It doesn't, it's not like of the other miracles, as we will see in chapter 10, where He's healing people and they're coming to Him, and the other Gospels just write, Day after day, he's healing people. This, it gets down into the weeds. We're walking through the grass. You can feel it on your bare feet. Jesus is talking to this man. He's revealed himself, both in healing him and then coming back to him to seal the deal, as it were. Do you believe? The other side to this man's faith is that he suffered for it. Don't miss that. Following Jesus put this man at odds with the religious leaders who cast him out of the synagogue. Friend, the same may be true for you. You may have friends who don't like you anymore because you want to read your Bible and talk to them about it. They would just rather talk about social media or be busy doing other things. You have 
family members who may come at odds with you over a holiday conversation about the need for them to see and believe in the real Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus, what he does in verse 39, after confirming this man as a follower of him, after asking him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And receiving this man's worship, Jesus then pivots in verse 39 to those, from those who see their need to those who refuse to see the obvious. And he says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And this one who said, Are we also blind? Jesus responded, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Friend, there is no clearer passage than, to show, than this to show us that the incarnate God came into the world in order to save sinners, to show us our need for Him, and to fill that gap with His presence, to reconcile us to God. Jesus has done this with this man, and yet there are others who oppose Him. Do you understand that Jesus came to bring this kind of division into the world? He would give his life to those who see their need, and he would bring judgment to those who reject him. The simple question is, will you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man? Do you see your need for his grace? Every one of us is born blind to our sin. And that God chooses to work in such a way indicates not only he has the power to bring sight to us, to produce faith in us, but he also works with urgency. The days are short. I heard about Christianity and the gospel for the first 19 years of my life. I was in church while I was in the womb, folks. It took 19 years for God to get a hold of my stubborn, willful heart. And it was through losing sight. It was through losing vision that God got a hold of my heart. And I'm just burdened that there may be some in this room who think playing games is cool, it's okay, and you got time. That same year I lost sight, I lost a friend in a car wreck. That same year I saw friends hospitalized for drugs. You don't have as much time as you think. Today is the day of salvation because it's being proclaimed to you so that you would respond with belief and that you would also respond with worship. And that the cost for following Jesus would not at all cause a shadow of doubt across your mind. He's worth it all. He paid it all, all to him I owe. So I just ask this morning, do you believe? 
Don't be like those who say, oh, we have wisdom. We don't need the crutch of Christianity. This Jesus thing, yeah, may be good for you, not for me. Be like this man who once was blind but now sees. We need Jesus to open our eyes so that we may believe in him. That's the point. That's the point of this entire passage. Unless Jesus opens eyes, no one can believe. And so I urge you to pray for that to take place in your life. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment as the worship team comes up and leads us and see the destined day arise. That final verse says, Holy Jesus, grant us grace in that sacrifice to place. All our trust for life renewed, pardon sin and promise good. Grant us grace to sing your praise round your throne through endless days. We have this moment, and that is it. Do you believe? And if so, how should that belief motivate you to live and to act? And if you don't believe, recognize the sobering warning. This this passage closes. One life being changed, many others staying the same. Don't play the odds. Don't gamble with your future. Either Christ is who he says he is, and you need to bow the knee now, or he is a liar. But we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we encourage you to pray for that faith as well. Lord, we ask simply that you would give us the grace to trust your word. Open our eyes. Open the eyes of anyone in here, whether they're a young boy or girl, or they're an old and hardened veteran of living in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would strip away any heart that says, are we also blind? Do we have a need of this? Are you accusing us of being blind? Lord, we pray that in your grace and your mercy, you would open the hearts and the minds, that you would give sight to any who are blind here today, spiritually, that you would restore them and show them who you are so that they might glory in your name. Grant us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.